0: Right. Well, I do want to say it again, and I really mean it. That I'm really glad to be here, and very thankful that the Holy Spirit and your leaders decided to invite me. And I do hope to come back uh, many times and bring my wife. You know, I go to events like this because she just can't go with me to everything. There's grandkids to take care of. She's got her own job. But I find myself when I'm here going, Becky should be here, Becky should be here, Becky should be here. I'm getting all this, and Becky's not getting this. Okay, so we'll work on this next year. Okay. Amen. I already gave you the dates. Yep, I already have the dates. So put some pressure on heaven. <laughs> yeah, start praying. And pray for me next week when I'm not with you, because on Sunday, I'm going to go home on fr- tomorrow night, Be home all day Saturday. Sunday morning, I'm preaching in another church in my town. But then I'm going up along the coast of Northern California to a Christian camp to minister to, I don't know how many, could be 30, could be 70, could be 80 pastors and Christian leaders for a four-day healing retreat. I didn't arrange it. Someone else did. And he's been to our seminars, and he wants me to lead these Christian leaders. And they're Southern Baptists, most of them. Yeah, so... Someone even said, you mean the Southern Baptists let you come and teach them, and you're not a Southern Baptist? Yeah, I don't know. It's another one of those miracle things. But I'll tell you, last year at Thanksgiving, I was at a retreat with 400 Chinese Christians from different churches, and that's a different group to speak to, and after a few sessions, one of the ladies said to me, who do you find the hardest to teach biblical forgiveness to? And I thought, that's a good question, and no one's ever asked me that, but I had an immediate answer, and my answer in my head was so quick that I laughed, because I said, oh, that's easy. She said, really? Who are the most difficult? Because she's thinking, you know, atheists, you know, uh, people in the world, drug addicts. No, they're easy. Prisoners, they're easy. Um, I said, hardest people, evangelical Christians. She goes, you're kidding. I said, no, no. And the hardest of the evangelical Christians are the pastors. Because they they believe they've got it. And I'm not faulting them for that. They've invested a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy, a lot of heart, a lot of passion. Their their future, their retirement. (laughs) I didn't say that. That was you. And it is hard. I know the crisis I had to come to in my own personal life about 16, 17 years ago as a pastor not having had the opportunity to go to Bible school or seminary, but investing a lot of time in ministry and Bible studies and reading books and, and being with other Christian leaders. And I was sure I understood what forgiveness was. And like I said, I worked for two years to forgive my wife for just little sins that arise in raising six kids together in, home, in a small house doing home school. I mean... And and I didn't even come from a a severely broken background. My parents, again, weren't divorced. There was no alcohol. There weren't drugs. I wasn't beaten or neglected or anything like that. And, And yet I had to come to grips that I couldn't ride the bicycle of forgiveness. I could preach it, sing about it, boast in it, thought I understood it, thought I could explain it, but when it came to actually doing it, I couldn't. And again, that measuring tool I used was Paul, when he says in Ephesians, be angry, but do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And my anger towards Becky was just slowly increasing worse and worse. And and you'd figure a Christian pastor would be able to forgive his lovely Christian wife for little sins without a big deal. And I just could not get it done. And so I had to come to the crisis of my own faith in life and realize I just don't know what this is. I had to be honest with myself. You know if you have a bicycle or someone if I ask someone do you have a bicycle and they say yes and I say do you ride it? Do you know how to ride it? Oh yeah. I say show me and they say okay watch and they get their bike out and they hop on their bike and they start down the driveway and they fall off in five feet and I say okay we'll try again maybe a minute and they fall off in seven feet and then they fall off in three feet and they try about eight times you know what I would say probably you would say the same thing to them that I would say to them I don't think you know how to ride a bicycle. You may think you do, but riding it means staying on it and going somewhere and going kind of with ease. I mean, how many of you do have a bicycle? How many of you ride it? Most of you do. That's good. That's interesting in a place where it snows a lot because in California, people buy these really expensive bicycles. How many of you have bicycles? A lot of hands go up. How many of you ride it? About 80% of the hands go down. Not that they can't ride it, they just have it and don't use it, which actually is a lot like all of us Christians. We have this incredibly expensive bicycle called forgiveness, and we save it for emergencies, <laughs> hoping never to be in an emergency. So we never really get out and ride it. And bicycles, I don't know if you, you realize this, if you don't ride your bicycle and you have one, you've got to store it somewhere. And every time you go out to the garage, you realize it's just taking up space. And you wonder when you're going to get rid of it. Because you don't really need it. Other people might need it. Well, again, I want to say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we all need to develop a lifestyle of forgiveness. Why? Because we've all sinned sinned. And we've all been sinned against. Two nights ago, I tried to emphasize this thing that God calls sin actually damages the human soul and destroys loving relationships. It even does more than that, but those are the two things that we want to focus on. Damages the functionality of the human soul. You can't think clearly. You don't make good choices. You can't feel the way we're supposed to feel personalities are corrupted and twisted and broken and we get stuck in compulsive behaviors. We get tempted by things that we succumb to. We have chronic depression or chronic anger or both and we just get stuck and trapped and and we sing more songs and read more Bible verses and go to church more and maybe go on missions trips and tithes and yet none of those things change a whole lot because we really haven't come to grips with another, the second simple biblical truth, and that is it's practicing forgiveness that allows God to heal us. So last night I talked about what forgiveness is, the two sides of sin, that every sin has a penalty, it's a crime against God, and the penalty is physical execution by God. One penalty for any and every sin. On the penalty side of sin, every sin is identical. On the consequence side of sin, the other side of sin, there are different kinds of sins at different levels that have different kinds of consequences. Bigger sins have bigger consequences. Smaller sins have smaller consequences. God says he forgives sins. And what he means is he forgives the penalty and he can forgive the consequences. But he forgives the penalty how and where? At the cross of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ has already paid the penalty for us, God says, I've already forgiven you. And because Jesus Christ has died for every other person and every other sin, that's why Jesus would say, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them because it's already paid for. Not even by choice, just come to the discovery that I've already paid for it. God, and my Father, has already forgiven them. Now catch up to where we are and enjoy it. But he also says that I God says I can only forgive consequences if and when the guilty person what repents. Which is why even the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know when Jesus was talking to the disciples uh, after the resurrection who didn't recognize him and was unfolding the scriptures he said and for this reason uh, because of the resurrection in particular the uh, good news of the forgiveness of sins through repentance will be preached in in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ. The gospel of repentance. If you repent, God can heal you. If you don't repent, not that God doesn't want to heal you. He can't. You've put yourself in a position where you just left yourself in prison. My wife even likes to picture that prison door this way, is that the consequences of sin put us in a prison. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, the door is wide open. But most of us are so content and so used to our prison cell and have decorated it so nicely with our coping mechanisms, we stay in the prison cell. And the door is wide open. And then we wonder why God doesn't do more and why we aren't experiencing more life and more health. We're living in a prison cell. but such a nice prison cell. Look at the nice pictures I put up. And I've got drapes. and, And I've been here a long time. And it's comfortable. And I don't know what it's like out there in the world where there's real life and real freedom. Because real life and real freedom is pretty powerful and intense. I talked about how there's two sides to salvation, then, too. That God has given to every human being the beginning of salvation through the forgiveness of the penalty of sin. Which is so important for you because since Jesus died for them, you are able to forgive them. If Jesus didn't die for them, you would have no just, effective grounds for forgiving anyone. You're stuck. But being saved, completely saved, born again, restored to to God, um, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, with all those wonderful things you prayed, well, that only comes to people who believe in Jesus for salvation from their practice of sin and from the consequences of sin. Only repentant believers in Jesus get born again. So even though Jesus Christ died for everyone, not everyone is saved. And last night I said, tonight we'd be talking about, okay, now how are we going to do this? And this was one of the gentlemen. Good, I was waiting for you. Good job. (laughs) The how-to, how the rubber meets the road. What does it look like to take these truths we've been talking about and put them into everyday living? If... If there are two sides of sin and two sides of forgiveness, how do we receive God's forgiveness? How do we forgive other people and how do we ask other people to forgive us? Now, I want to be very careful here because I'm going to start talking about the six steps of personal forgiveness. And Brandon, maybe you could pass out these now because everyone's going to need this brochure. I want, I want to guard you against thinking this way. Sometimes when people hear me talk about the six steps of, of personal forgiveness, they kind of feel like it's a to-do list. Well, if I just do these six steps and kind of check them off, walk, walk through it, it will happen. You know, the forgiveness thing will happen. And it can sound to them then that it's very, forgiveness is very mechanical. If I just know this technique. matter of fact, some people say, why don't you just tell us the steps at the beginning? I say to them, because the steps are meaningless and powerless if you don't know the truth behind them. It's the truth that sets you free. And it's not just truth, again, information in your head. It's this personal, intimate interaction that you're having with the truth, and the truth is God himself. So practicing forgiveness... Might look a little mechanical as I explain it, but it's really an experience that you have with God. Every step of these six steps is an experience that you do with God, and so be a little careful because you your very coping mechanism again might try to walk you through these six steps and go, "See, it doesn't work." well, it's not the steps; it's your experience with God. So open this up for a minute. This is a great brochure, by the way. You can go to our website, ForgivenessMinistries.com, and you can download these to your computer for free, and you have permission, everyone has permission, you can print as many, I hope you print 10,000 of these, and then give them to as many people as you can. How many are empty? Because I got to talk to Staples tomorrow. You know, Satan's really sneaky. Is it just one? Well, that's yeah. There should be two sides, and we have plenty for everyone. So, who has a blank one or doesn't have one? Everyone good? Okay, we're good. This two-page brochure actually is the skeleton of everything I teach and write and everything in the book. So it's your cliff notes. So it's a nice reminder for yourself of the things you've heard. Someone said to me, I, I want to know this. I want to know this. Well, this is what you want to know. That's where it starts. And it's also probably the best little tool to share with someone else that might be wanting to learn about forgiveness. Well, let's talk about what's in here. You can preach sermons from this. You can do Sunday school classes from this if you know the truth behind it. But if you open it up to the inside, every sin has two sides, a penalty and negative consequences. And then you'll see the definitions for the two sides of forgiveness. Let's just read out loud together again from this, the definition for personal forgiveness. Personal forgiveness is releasing someone from having to pay the penalty for their own sins in light of the fact that Jesus Christ has already paid for their sins in full through his physical execution. This is what God has done with the whole world. He has released everyone from having to pay the penalty for their own sins in light of one fact and one fact only. And what is that? Jesus Christ has already paid for those sins in part. In full. How? By his, death, by his physical death on the cross. Now some people say, Steve, why do you keep emphasizing that the penalty for sin is physical and it's an execution and it's by God, I say. Well, that's how Jesus died. Matter of fact, He wanted to make sure we understood what the penalty for sin was and what His payment was by leaving um, a reminder that we could touch and taste and put in our mouth. The night He was betrayed, He took some bread and broke it and said, "This is My Spirit." He didn't say, "This is My Spirit," did He? He didn't. He didn't say, "This is My temporary trip to hell." Bread represents his what? His physical body. It doesn't even represent his soul. This is my body. And this red liquid represents my blood. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, and he didn't mean the Lord's table. What he meant was, unless I go to the cross and die physically, you're all going to die as if you were starving to death. There is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, the writer of Hebrews says. So God forgives people because of the death of Jesus Christ. And he says, forgive other people because I died for them too. So let's, let's put some feet to that now and look at these six steps. How do we put these truths into practice? Because Now, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Just knowing what forgiveness is doesn't let God heal you. You actually have to do forgiveness. You have to practice it. You have to interact with God over these truths in order for him to heal you. And you're going to really have to pay attention to that and encourage one another because the more you learn and the better you understand biblical forgiveness, the more tempted you will be to go, I don't actually have to do this. I just have to know it. No, you actually have to do it. Faith without works is dead. So here's the first step. If you're going to receive God's forgiveness, and the steps are the same for all three paths, so listen to how I say this. If you want to receive God's forgiveness for a particular sin, if you want to forgive somebody who has sinned against you, if you want to go to someone and ask them to forgive you, all so God can heal you, you're going to have to identify the sin first and who's responsible for it. I know a lot of times young Christians, and even I know some Christian songs, will sound this way. And sometimes Christian leaders will even pray a prayer like this Lord, we confess all our sins to you. That's impossible. Matter of fact, the, the songs that I know that have that line in it, I just hum through that line. Because I go, I can't confess all my sins to you, Lord. I don't even know what all my sins are. If I say I confess to you all my sins, you're going to say, that's nice, Steve. Which ones are you thinking of? (laughs) He's going to want me to identify some specific sins. Because sins in my life are not theoretical, abstract fantasies. They are actual events. They're historical realities. They're facts that have actually happened. They are knife wounds. They, They really happened. And they hurt God. And so when I sin against God, it just doesn't fly to say, I confess all my sins to you. expect to hear him say, that's wonderful. Which ones are you thinking about? Let's talk about specifics. Oh, I don't know, just all of them. Lord. Well, that's good, but you realize you don't see them all. I see them all, but you don't. So which ones do you want to work on? Now, they're all forgiven. You need to realize this. Even before you know your sins, they're paid for. Before you identify them, they're paid for. Before you commit them, they're paid for. Which means before you know them and commit them, even you're already forgiven. But if you're going to receive God's forgiveness and experience that forgiveness, you're going to have to identify those sins how do we identify sins? Christians argue a lot over is this a sin or is this a sin? Um, Non-Christians argue over it too. They don't use the word sin, but then the world really argues with Christians over what is sin, but even us Christians have a hard time getting on the same page. Well, This is what I'm going to suggest you do in practice. Number one, the first most important thing in identifying any sin, yours or someone else, is to pray and ask God. Because he knows them all. He doesn't make any mistakes. He doesn't misidentify sin. He doesn't practice any coping mechanisms. He doesn't excuse or justify or minimize anybody's sin. He sees them. He sees them exactly as they are. He knows every single one. It's why my wife says this, you know, I say identify the sin and the person responsible for them. Becky says, well, that sounds like we need to learn to see what God sees. Yeah, God sees the sins. We don't. So how do you see what God sees? Ask him. Lord, so I want to suggest you start getting into the habit. I'm not going to say you do it every day, though it wouldn't hurt to do it every day. But I would say at least a couple times a week at the beginning, might be good every day at the beginning so you can train yourself to get into a habit of forgiveness. You pray three prayers, one for each of the three paths of sin and forgiveness. First prayer would sound something like this. Matter of fact, I'll lead you in it in a minute, but I want you to hear it so that you can actually pray it with me. First prayer sounds like this Heavenly Father, how have I sinned against you at any time and have not yet received your forgiveness? You see my sin, I don't. What are the next sins I need to work work on with you? Second prayer. Heavenly Father, who has sinned against me and in what ways, and I've not yet forgiven them? Please show me so I can forgive them not so that I can blame them. We were talking about this a little in the house today. I don't want to see how people sin against me so I have an excuse for my irresponsibility and my sin. I want to see how people sin against me so I can bring it to the cross and forgive them. Third prayer. Lord, who have I sinned against and in what ways? And I've not yet gone to them and asked them to forgive me. Think God might want to answer those three prayers? <laughs> Brace yourself. He knows. Now, don't get overwhelmed, because He's not going to overwhelm you, and you don't have to find all your sins. Matter of fact, if you saw all your sins and all the sins that were committed against you, you'd probably have a heart attack. So He's just going to take you the next step, or to the next level, or to the next most important sins for you to deal with. But if you're honest, if you're sincere with yourself and with God, and say, I want to know what my sins are against you, so I can confess them, stop and repent, and receive your forgiveness. I want to know what other people have done to me, so I can forgive them. And I want to know how I've sinned against others, so I can ask them to forgive me. Oh, my God is just going to love answering that, because that's You're on the path to healing and to reconciliation. This is a tremendously powerful thing. David prayed a prayer like this. Can you think of any psalm where he said anything like this? Search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there be any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Lord, I can't. You know, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? You know, you look for your own sins, your coping mechanism's gonna r- rise up and go, You're not guilty of any sins, it's that other guy's fault. Holy Spirit's gonna be saying, Well, he sinned against you, but this part was your fault. You've gotta identify the sin and who's responsible for it. So we pray. Of course, secondly, God has given us commands in His Bible. Don't pray and ask God if when you murdered someone, if that was a sin. And expect him to answer in some miraculous way. He will just be silent and say, yeah, didn't you read the book? I already answered that one. (laughs) Is it a sin to sleep with my girlfriend and have sex with her before we're married? Why are you even asking? It's already answered. Commands are in the Bible to be very specific and give us a quick head start on this is sin and this is love. and The two are opposites. However, if God were to write a command for every way human beings could sin, how thick would the Bible have to be? Or really, how many volumes would the Bible have to contain? Because the variety of ways that human beings can sin are just... Innumerable—that's the word. It's innumerable, and so God can't and didn't try to label or give a command for every sin. So He moved from commands to principles. Principles cover more territory, but they're a little more vague. Principle, can you name? Can you think of a principle in the Bible that guides us into love and away from sin? You know the couple. How about love your neighbor? as yourself that's a principle now you might say it's a command yeah but what does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself it's a principle that you have to investigate and discern matter of fact it has loopholes to it even in the bible in the scripture there was a lawyer who came to jesus when jesus said that to him and said okay well that's good but just who is my neighbor who are we talking about here lord Certainly, we're not talking about Samaritans, Romans, Arabs. So principles will cover more ground. Love your neighbor as yourselves. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Those are principles. But they have loopholes that people get around. I have found by far the simplest, fastest, easiest way to identify a sin that even works for non-Christians. You go... non-Christians, I know they're not even looking for sin, but it's hard to get around this one, is to simply ask this question. If you're looking at someone's behavior, your behavior or someone else's, or words or attitude, simply ask this question. Would Jesus have done that? Would Jesus have done that? It's kind of like the what would Jesus do to kind of help you know what to do next. Now we're just using it backwards. Would Jesus have done that? And any time you find yourself or another human being not doing what Jesus would have done, guess what you're looking at? You're looking at a sin. Well, you need to repent, but first we need to identify it as a sin. Because Jesus always loves and never sins. So he is the the epitome, the example, the standard of this is what being a loving human being looks like. This is what it looks like to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we do have to use our imagination a little bit because we all don't know Jesus perfectly. None of us do. So we're still learning about him and growing in that, growing the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um... But we also only know him and think about him as a man, not a woman. What would Jesus look like as a woman? A lot of us don't think that way. Bruce Jenner, no. (laughs) What would the holy, pure, loving qualities of Jesus look like in a woman? Because that's God's goal, right? He's transforming us all into the image of Jesus Christ. So when he's done with all of us men, we're going to look like we're going to have the character of Jesus Christ. We'll still be individuals with our own personality, but we will be as good as Jesus is good, as honest as Jesus is honest, as kind as he is kind, as faithful, as generous, as loyal, as just. All of the internal qualities of Jesus, every one of us men will have. Guess what? Every one of you women are going to have it too. What does Jesus look like as a woman? You're not going to look like a man you'll still be women and look just like Jesus. So how you have to use your anointed, God-given imagination is to put Jesus in your shoes when you're looking for your sins and put Jesus in other people's shoes when you're looking for their sins. So let's take an example of this. If Jesus had been your earthly father, man you grew up with, would Jesus have treated you and spoke to you any differently than your dad did? What do you think? Yeah, I see some eyes going real wide. Yeah, because you may have had a very good father. I had a very good father. But there's no human being who even comes close to being like Jesus all the time. So every one of our dads have sinned against us. So when you start to compare Jesus and imagine what would Jesus look like as a dad in the 20th century, not the 21st century, because we all we were kids in the 20th century, and if he parented us, how would Jesus have talked to me differently than my dad would have or felt about me? What would Jesus have, how would, and every time you find your dad acting differently than Jesus, what are you looking at? One of your dad's sins. Now here's some imagination, takes a little bit more. If Jesus had been your mother, a woman with all the perfect qualities of Jesus, if she had been your biological mom, brought you into the world, nursed you, took care of you, taught you, protected you, would Jesus as a mom, your mom, have treated you any differently than your mom did? Sorry, I know some of your kids are right here, and they're going to have to say, no, they, they didn't. We won't look. <laughs> we won't look. <laughs> you know, every time I preach this, I go, oh, man, this is true for me, too, because I am not as good a father as Jesus is. How have I not acted like Jesus towards my children if Jesus were my kid's parent? Oh, i got to go ask my kids for some forgiveness. Now, there are a lot of people who say, Steve, you've got to be crazy. You can't use Jesus as the standard for our behavior. I say, why not? Because nobody is that good. And I go, bingo. Isn't that the nature of the problem? Nobody is doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing. We're all sinners. That's what it means. We're all sinners. Which means they were all, all of us have acted in selfish sin towards the people who are even closest to us, even our own children. Ladies, what would Jesus look like as your husband? I know you really love your husbands. I know you do. I've heard you. I've watched it. It's wonderful to see. But I'm sorry. He is not yet like Jesus. And I should get a big amen on that because if my wife were here, she'd be giving a big amen. Right? Right? Sure. <laughs> I'm not putting words in your mouth, am I? <laughs> no, you're not married to a person as good as Jesus yet. Well, how is your husband's behavior towards you? How is his? How are his attitudes towards you? How are his words towards you? How are his actions towards you different from what you would imagine Jesus to do, think, and say if you were married to Jesus? Every time your husband doesn't treat you and think about you like Jesus does, now you're looking at one of your husband's sins. Gentlemen, brothers, what would Jesus look like as your wife? You ladies thought you would get off the hook there. What if you ladies, what if your wife was perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus and never sinned? How does your wife treat you and think about you and act towards you differently than Jesus would? Now you're looking at your wife's sins. Of course, you need to do that for yourself, too. If Jesus were my wife's husband in my place, in my shoes, how would Jesus treat Becky differently than I treat her? He'd probably call her more often than I do. He'd probably say, I love you more often than I do. He would have been a lot more empathetic the beginning of our marriage. Matter of fact, he would have been. I wasn't empathetic at all. And I start comparing myself to Jesus. I find all kinds of sins. Ladies, men, you need to hear this. Ladies, sometimes you're going to look for sin in individuals. Now I'm going to show you how you have to look for sin in groups, too. Ladies, what if every man on this planet acted just like Jesus? Would your world be different? Men, unless you're paying attention, you have no idea of how different a world is, the same world this world is, if you're a woman than if you're a man. I remember one time I was out late at night on a Saturday night preparing for a sermon. Becky was, we lived in a mobile home park in a bad part of town at the time. and, and But I'm 6'3", 200 pounds. I can walk around at night. I don't worry about getting raped. Never been mugged. I mean, that can happen, but I don't worry. I, it doesn't cross my mind. Beautiful summer night, warm 1130 at night. And I'm thinking, this is so beautiful. I've got to go home, watch the kids, let Becky come out here and walk the streets. And for the first time in my, and I don't mean as a prostitute, I mean just to walk where I was in our mobile, just in our mobile home park. And that was the first time God pointed out to me, did you hear what you just said? Because immediately my feeling was, oh, I can't let Becky do that. Why not? Well, she's a woman. She lives in a different world than I do. She can be raped. She's only 5'2". She can't defend herself like I could. She's bait. I'm bear spray. Right? Men, our sisters in Christ, our mothers, our biological sisters, our daughters are growing up in a different world than we are. They grew up in a world where any man could at any time do things to them that they would not think of doing to you. More than that, we can get jobs and promotions they can't get. We can get paid more money that they can get. This world of sin is a male-dominated world because of sin. And the women are doing their best to get through it. But ladies, what if every man in this world thought and acted like Jesus? Would there be any pornography in the world? No. Would you fear rape? No. Would you fear being taken advantage of by men? No. See, even if you've never been sexually abused, I'm talking to men and women, even if you've never been sexually abused, well, actually, I'm talking especially to the women, but even if you've never been sexually abused, each of you women have to learn to forgive us men in general as a group because all of us men in general sin against you by not thinking about and treating women the way Jesus would. I'm as much guilty of it as every other man on the planet. Let me say that again. One of the acts of forgiveness you need to do is put all of us men before the cross of Jesus Christ. And say, Jesus had to die because of how men think of and treat women in this world. And those knife wounds have damaged you. And God wants to heal you. Now, I can also say this, guys, wouldn't it be great if all the women in the world acted like Jesus and didn't flaunt their bodies around in front of us, running around in underwear on TV commercials and at football games, tempting us all the time? Come on, ladies, give us a break. So us men need to forgive women in general for the way they can use their sexual attractiveness to manipulate and maneuver When I'm in African-American churches, did you grow up in the United States? Okay. Well, you know, there are um, black people who come from other countries who do not have the history of African-Americans in the United States who don't feel, but since you grew up here, you know, similar to being a woman in this world, what it means to be a black person in a white America. Amen? Amen. And even though we have never owned you as a slave or any black person as a slave, you sometimes have to face the same sins in general from white people in general that women do from men. You're treated as a second-class citizen. You're belittled. You're put down. You're held down. You're laughed at. You're made fun at, all because of the color of your skin. I've got, I can't tell you how many African-American churches I've done this ministry in or talk to African-American pastors, and I've I've asked, oh, maybe, oh, I don't know, 40, 50 African-American pastors this question. Have you ever heard, have you ever believed, have you ever preached this? God the Father executed Jesus because of how white America treats black Americans. And they go, like you do. So- what did you just say? I have to write that down. What did you just say? I said, God the Father executed Jesus because of how white Americans think about and treat black Americans. They are, no, no one has said to me, oh yeah, we teach that here. You know, we are never going to solve the race problem in this country until this country practices forgiveness on both sides. Whites confessing their sins and asking for forgiveness. And blacks forgiving us whether we repent or not. Until then, all it's going to be is anger and fighting. You've had good experiences, but I bet you know some who have not had good experiences. Good. Good thinking. But oftentimes whole groups get labeled for all Republicans are bad, all Democrats are bad, all Arabs are bad, all Muslims are, should be killed. Uh, you were sharing that with me. Um, we have to learn to identify real sins and individual sin against individuals, groups sin against individuals, Individuals sin against groups, and groups sin against groups. There's a lot of sin out there that we're ignoring. And again, I don't want you to get overwhelmed. I want to remind you again, the Holy Spirit, if you pray, will just lead you to the next most important sins that you need to deal with. But I do want to give you a heads up. Ladies, you need to forgive us men. Men, you need to forgive the women. So that's where it starts. It starts identifying sin and the person or persons responsible for it. And I would also highly recommend that you don't go any further until you're convinced it actually is a sin. Because the blood of Jesus should not be used indiscriminately and too hastily just to say, oh, I forgive you. Matter of fact, I don't even make forgiveness jo- jokes because to me, forgiveness, forgiveness is about the cross of Jesus Christ, which means making a forgiveness joke is like using the Lord's name in vain, only it's not his name. It's using the Lord's blood in vain as a joke, and I'm, going, I'm not going to go there. That's too valuable to treat indiscriminately. And I'm not going to say I forgive someone until I'm first 100% sure that I need to forgive them because what they did is a real sin. And not possibly maybe my sin against them because I'm expecting them to live according to my rules and my agenda and serve me and they're not cooperating and so I'm angry at them because they're not following my way. That's not their sin. That's Because they could be doing what Jesus wants them to do but they're not doing what Steve Deal wants them to do. And that makes Steve Deal upset. Anger, by the way, will always lead you to someone's sin. Anger will always lead you to someone's sin. It's just not always the person you're angry at sin. Usually it should be when someone sins against you, they hurt you, you'll feel angry, and your anger will help say, hey, there's, something's happened. You need to practice forgiveness. Better identify the sin. But if you're angry at someone, you better ask this question first. Is it a log in my own eye or a, uh, something in their eye? Lord, am I sinning against them? Am I angry at them because they're not living according to my agenda? Or am I angry at them because they've legitimately sinned against me because they broke your law of love? Amen? Now, we can ask questions at the end of each of these steps, too. So before I go to the second step, any thoughts, any questions? We're good? Second step. Oh. How do you ask for forgiveness? The third path, you know, how do you ask someone to forgive you if they've already passed away? Um, I'll go ahead and answer that here. We're a little ahead of it. If you have sinned against someone who has died, uh, there's a couple options, and you'll have to pray and ask God what would be the most effective. Now, Right away, the Spirit's reminding me, first and foremost, you need to confess that sin to God and receive his forgiveness. If you try and go to ask someone to forgive you before you receive God's forgiveness, you're going to try to get the person you sinned against to give you something only God can give you. Which, I'm glad you said that also, the question, because it means that these three paths of forgiveness, these are the order in which you need to practice them. First and foremost, always confess your sins to God and receive his forgiveness. Second, identify the other person's sins and forgive them, without even talking to them. It's you and God. Third, now you go to them and ask them to forgive you. Now, if you've already forgiven, confessed your sin and received God's forgiveness the reason why you're going to ask them to forgive you is not so you can get them to forgive you so you get something. It's so you help them to forgive you so God can heal them. But if the person's dead, obviously that's not an option anymore. But still, it's good practice, I believe, to talk to God and say, You know, Lord, I've confessed this sin to you. I've received your forgiveness but I can't go to, and I have forgiven this person for what they've done to me, but they've, they're dead. And I can't go to them and ask them to forgive me. But you know my heart, that if they were alive, I would do this. And so show me, is there another way that I can participate in this? Because sometimes when you sin against someone else who's died, what you need to do is go to a next closest family member depending on the kind of I mean obviously if you stole $50,000 from a person who died you can't go and ask the dead person to forgive you but what about his wife you stole $50,000 from her too or his children what about going to his children and paying his children back and asking his children to pay uh, to forgive you so sometimes there's family members that you can go to who represent the person who died Sometimes it's just not possible, and it's just something you do with God. And that's where it ends. Second step is to feel the reality of the sin together with God. Or as Becky would say, we need to learn to feel what God feels after we discover a sin. So someone sins against you and you feel the pain, like when you stub your toe, and you feel the anger or you're at least letting it come to the surface and you're angry at them. And ah!" That's good. That's healthy. It is not healthy to suppress emotions. Now, never act on your anger because the Bible says in James, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, the other way of saying that, it never achieves the righteousness of God, which means any time you act in anger, even if you're doing the right thing, you're going to sabotage its effectiveness. Anger never achieves the righteousness of God. However, the best time to forgive someone is when you're actually feeling the most angry at them, which is why Ephesians says, be angry but do not sin Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So I want to feel the anger that people, when they sin against me. And I need to be aware that when I sin against God and others... He is angry, and really we should say was angry, because all his anger has been spent and propitiated at the cross of Jesus Christ. But again, God has done something 2,000 years ago that we are learning about and catching up to. So we've got to kind of process it. God hates what I did. God is angry at what I did because it was not respectful. It was insulting. It was blasphemous to Him. It was a slap in the face. It was hurtful to other people. I should not have done that. Sins are not just legal realities, they are emotional realities. They are knife wounds hurt us and they make us angry they make us feel guilty and they make us feel shame and so we need to go to God and talk to God about the emotions that need to be attached to this sin we've identified so if it's my sin against God I would go to God and say something like this when I did this or all the times I've done this Lord how did that make you feel And know that even though he loves you perfectly, unconditionally, and nothing can change that love, you need to be aware by faith, the Bible says, God hates sin, And he is angry at it. That his justice is not emotionally neutral. That there is white, hot, matter of fact, the Bible uses the term wrath of God that he would pour out on sin. Loves you, but has to bring about justice doesn't push you away, says, come close, don't be afraid. Matter of fact, you need to hear this too. Most people don't realize this. God is the safest place in the world to bring your sin, which is opposite how we naturally think, because we think if I have failed God, just like if I fail you, if I fail you, you're going to be angry at me and hurt me, so I'm going to stay away from you. But if I fail God, oh man, He's even more righteous and more holy, then He's going to hurt me. No, He's not going to hurt you. Why? Now be careful. He does love you. It's the price has been paid. Because God's love has to be in harmony with God's justice. Love does not supersede justice, it is in harmony with justice. See, the most famous verse in the Bible is what? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. Notice what it says and what it does not say. For God so loved the world that he forgave everybody. It doesn't say that. It says, for God so loved the world that he did something. He gave his son in order to make forgiveness possible. And if Jesus didn't die, God's love couldn't save us. From God's justice. That makes sense? It's interesting. The liberal theologians all through history, which side of God's character do they focus on? Love or justice? Love, to the point that liberal theologians will say because God is love, nobody's going to hell, everybody's going to heaven. And then there's the extreme, I'm not even sure they're always Christians, but they'll call themselves Christians who preach hellfire and damnation, that God's going to send you to hell with a smile on his face. That's not true either. See, God's love and justice go hand in hand. God's love and justice meet at the cross of Jesus Christ in agreement, and God's love satisfies God's justice through the body of Christ. But there's an emotional reality to all that. We need to feel God's hatred of sin. Be very careful. Some of you who are used to condemning yourselves and your coping mechanism is to excuse other people's sin and minimize other people's sin and blame yourself for other people's sin. You're going to identify someone's sin and go, well, you know, God wants me to love them. It wouldn't be right to be angry at them. I need to be self-connected, and I, I probably deserved it anyway. And it wasn't that big of a deal. matter of fact, sometimes when I've confessed my sins to a person, and it's a small sin, they'll say, Steve, what are you talking about? That's okay. That's no big deal. And I go, wait a second. Jesus had to die for this, which means it really is a big deal. It may not be as big a deal as some other sins you're thinking of, But if Jesus had to die for it, I'm not going to say it's okay or it's not a big deal. This is a big deal if Jesus had to die for it. And so I need to feel the reality of my sins, how they affect God. I need to talk to him about it. I really need to talk to God about when other people sin against me. Lord, when this person was doing this to me, how did it make you feel? I think I said the first night that for about... 1900 years now, the early church, because they believed in some Greek um, philosophy, believed that God was incapable of emotion. And God's emotions have been pretty much shut out of theology for 1900 years and are just now starting to impact Christian life and theology. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, that we're living in this time then. God has a heart. God feels like a loving parent. Now, all of you who are parents, you see one of your children getting hurt, what do you feel? You feel their pain. And who do you get angry at? Whoever's hurting them. And you don't think that's abnormal. You think that's healthy. You know what? You're absolutely right. It is healthy. And you're not better than God, which means when God watches any of His human children getting hurt by another human, what does He feel? Pain. And then what does he feel? Anger. And you need to know that by faith. You need to take this sin you've identified that someone's committed against you and talk to your father about that. And you need to look up at him. And when it's hurting so bad, you're crying. Sometimes in counseling, I'm talking to a person who's describing how they've been sexually abused by their dad for eight years when they were a little girl. Now they're 40 years old and all this hell is broken loose in their life and they've been in bondage and they've been in pain and they're crying. And, and I, I cry with them. And then when they calm down, I say, if Jesus were sitting next to you right now, what would he say to you? Now, it's a little bit of a trick question, but I say, what would he say to you? I can't tell you the number of Christians who say to me, I don't know. See, they don't know God as a compassionate, empathetic, feeling being who hates to see his children hurt. I don't know what he would say to me, and I have the good, the privilege of saying to them, I know what God would say. Nothing. What you would see is Jesus crying. And he would throw his arms around you and embrace you. And he wouldn't say, it's all right. He wouldn't say, you just need to let it go and move on. He wouldn't say, it's not that big of a deal because I'm here with you. He'd say, eventually when he did talk, that hurts like hell and I feel it with you. See, we need to feel the heart of God both with our sins and with other people's sins. Now, this is really important because when you have been injured by someone else, you and you're hurting, you need to know that your God loves you so much that he feels your pain because when you realize by faith and experience that empathy, guess what you feel? Comforted. My wife worked for years teaching me what comfort was. I told you this, and I had no emotions. I had no empathy. I shut everything down. At 28 years, we got married when I was 22. At 28 years old, my church finished the call of accepting me into being full time pastor. And you know what my wife said to me? We got in the car, and she wasn't mean. She wasn't angry. She wasn't being vindictive. She just looked at me and smiled a little sly smile and said, Well, Now you're going to have to comfort people. It's almost like she was saying, good luck. You don't even know what it is. And she was right. I didn't. I was a teaching pastor. I'd, I'd say, I'm a teaching pastor. I don't comfort people. Would Jesus ever say that to a human being? I'm just here to teach you. I'm not here to empathize with you or comfort you. Can you imagine Jesus saying... So that was a sin when I was thinking and talking that way. No, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they feel our pain. And they feel it more deeply than we do because we suppress our pain, we minimize it, we take pain pills, maybe real pain pills, or maybe we just do other things to avoid the pain. You know what? God never takes painkillers. Remember when Jesus was going to the cross and he was desperately thirsty? and there was, he, there was gall in the drink, and gall is a painkiller, and Jesus tasted it, oh, I'm so thirsty, and he could taste the gall, and it says he refused it because God never takes painkillers. He feels your pain more deeply than you do. So what does God feel when he has to be there with a little boy or a little girl who's being sexually abused? He feels it as if it were happening to him. Secondly, he feels it as if it were happening to his his only son or only daughter. It's emotionally devastating. To him. He's able to survive it. It tears us up. He's God. He can survive it. We barely make it through that. The This is actually the hardest part of practicing forgiveness when you know it. For me, you, you, you probably think, well, Steve knows this. He practices this all the time. Oh, there are times when I identify a sin, and I will go, this is a big sin, and it's going to hurt a lot. And I've got to go through the second step. I can't skip over it, and I don't want to feel this again. But if I don't, my forgiveness is going to be rather shallow, which means my healing is going to be rather shallow. I'm going to short-circuit the more deeply I can experience these emotions together with God, not alone, the deeper my forgiveness experience will be. See how this isn't just a mechanical thing you do and check it off? No, this is an an experience with God. Could who intercede? You mean and stop the bad thing from happening? Yes. Um, so many people pray for a specific thing. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think some of the worst stories I've heard is one of a father who was praying the Lord or saying the Lord's prayer. He wasn't praying as he raped his little daughters. Imagine how that person thinks and feels about the Christian church and about God and about the Bible. Not only that, but that little girl was praying, Lord, save me. She grows up thinking this, Lord God, why didn't you save me? And She doesn't say it that way. It's, why the hell didn't you save me? I don't want to have anything to do with you. So your question is very legitimate, and we Christians need to have a good answer, and I rarely hear good answers to this question. I think there is a good answer, but we need to understand this about the answer. The question is really this. How is it that a loving, all-powerful God can let bad things happen, especially to innocent children? Why doesn't he stop it? If he can stop it, and if he's all-powerful, He should be able to stop it. And if he loves us, then he must stop it. So if he doesn't stop it, people will conclude either God isn't love or he's not all powerful. Or maybe he doesn't exist at all. Or maybe he's just a crappy God. And I'm using the words they use. I don't want to have anything to do with that God. If that's how, you remember the big earthquake and tidal wave in Southeast Asia on December 26th. When was that, 2006 or something? 200,000 people killed in the matter of hours. And I remember listening to these interviews. TV interviewers were interviewing religious leaders, Christian leaders, Muslim leaders, Buddhist leaders, and the same question was asked over and over again for days. How can God let this happen? How can God let this happen? Why didn't He stop it? First of all, you need to realize this no answer, no matter how true or right it is, is going to make you go like this. Oh, well, then that feels okay. It's okay that 200,000 people die. It's okay that a little girl or a little boy gets raped by anyone. It's okay. It's never okay. It's not okay. It's the consequence of sin. Even earthquakes are the consequence. The Bible teaches the weather we have is a consequence of human behavior. No scientist has been able to figure it out yet, but the Bible clearly teaches one of the reasons why we can't predict weather, it's connected to human behavior. Amen? A little while ago, we were having a drought in California. Some friends and I were kind of joking about this, and someone said, well, maybe to solve the drought, we need to get Californians to do an Indian rain dance. We all laughed, we were joking. And I joking, half jokingly said, well, maybe we should tell Californians to repent. One of my friends said, I think it'd be easier to get them to do the rain dance. Yeah. See, Californians don't think the drought has anything to do with Californian behavior. I go, you guys aren't paying attention to reality. So no answer is going to make you feel, oh, then it's okay. Secondly, that question often comes out of, and I'm not saying this is true for you, but the question also comes out of the wrong belief that this all-powerful, all-loving God is watching these terrible things happening and feels nothing. That he's emotionally divorced from all this pain. Well, I just tried to teach you that's not true. He's not... He is so connected. He is so intimately connected to human pain. It's as if it's happening to him. It's as if he's being raped. It's as if he's being uh, dying. And if we want to magnify that even more, again, we as parents know which is worse, you being raped or your child being raped? It's your child being raped. And every human being is a child of God. So imagine how hard it would be to love someone, and to technically have the power to stop their pain and what's being done to them, and for some reason not be able to do it. Your hands are tied. But you can't turn your back on it and ignore it. You can't take a pain pill. You have to not just watch passively. You have to feel it intimately with that person see people don't know our God is a suffering God the sins of the world are making it by the way when he closes the doors to the lake of fire he will have locked himself in there with them Steve what are you saying Where in the Bible does it say God stops his unconditional love for people ever stops? By the way, where does it say that God stopped loving Satan? Or the fallen angels? God is love. When does he stop loving? Never. So when a third of the angels choose to rebel against God, when who knows how many billions of humanity choose to rebel against God and don't want to repent and don't want to have anything to do with God and don't want to believe in Jesus, and God has to say on the judgment day, if this is your choice, I hate your choice, but I'm going to have to let you do it. Goodbye. And the sheep will go over here to paradise with Jesus. And the goats will go over here to the lake of fire. Why do you think God stops thinking about them? Stops loving them? Stops feeling their pain? That's what I mean by he just locked himself in there with them. He will always be feeling their pain. Now, why would God create a world where that's even possible? for he is suffering more than any and every human being put together. It's for the sake of love. Because real love has to be a choice. And it does suffer all things. Real love, though, has to be a choice. Even Disney knows this. When, I, when the genie came out of Aladdin's lamp, and the genie said to Aladdin... I can grant you any three wishes. And Aladdin said, really, any three wishes? The genie said, well, there's three things I can't do. I can't kill anyone, I can't raise anyone from the dead, and I can't make anyone fall in love with you. Why did they put that in there? Because even the secular world knows if you force someone to love you, it isn't real. You cannot force someone To love you. If love is going to be real, it has to be an unmanipulated choice. So God made human beings in his own image with the capacity to love, to have the choice to love. He put Adam and Eve in a garden. They had the capacity to choose to love, but the tree had to be in the garden so there would be an actual choice to love themselves or God. And when they chose to love themselves more than God, literally all hell broke loose on the planet, including the raping of little girls and little boys and tidal waves and growing old and dying and wars and disease and cancer and divorce. God has to let it happen so human love can be real. You might say, well,
1: I don't like that.
0: Well, if human love's not real, then life's not real, and this whole thing is just a game. This is not a game. This is real. It has real consequences. And God is suffering more than anyone else. So this second step, I'm glad I did share that. I don't normally share all that. Thank you for your question. I hope that's helpful to you. You need to know your God loves you. You need to know your God hates sin, and he feels the pain you cause him and others, And he feels the pain that other people call you, cause you when they sin against you. And man, is he angry at the people who sin against you. And see, when you asked last night about, well, I don't want to forgive those people because, how did you say it? Do you remember? Pardon? You want to hurt them. You know who wants to hurt them more than you do? You might want to hurt them. God wants to take them out and crucify them. You go, whoa, wait, 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 I don't, I'm not going that far. I don't, I don't need to crucify them. God would say, you might not need to crucify them, but for me to balance the eternal books, the universal books, I have to take them out and execute them. And that brings us actually to the third step of, of personal forgiveness, and that is to condemn what God condemns. We need to... By faith, believe what the Bible says and agree and acknowledge that the only, the only, let me say it again, the only just and righteous penalty for any and every sin is physical execution by God. And this will be the biggest, if the step two is your most difficult emotional challenge, step three is your most, dif- most difficult faith challenge. Because most of us will say Jesus had to die for the whole world. For which sins of the whole world? For all sins. Which means every sin has a penalty. What's the penalty? How severe of that death? Physical execution by God. Which means if a man rapes a woman according to God's justice and his internal character, he would have to take that man out and do what to him to bring about justice? Take him out and execute him. And if a man kills a thousand men, what would God have to do to bring about justice in light of one man killing a thousand men? He'd take him out and execute him. And if a man steals a candy bar from 7-Eleven, put your seatbelt on. A man? No, not a man. I used to be a shoplifter. How about a 12-year-old boy steals six or eight packages of Razzles from a 7-Eleven? What does God have to do to that 6-year-old boy, or 6th grade boy, 12-year-old boy, to bring about divine justice? He has to take him out. Now, See, he does. You've got the right answer, and I'm glad you said that. Because the Bible teaches when it comes to the penalty of sin, every sin is exactly the same. Consequences, sins are different. Penalty, every sin is the same. So the penalty for murder is physical execution by God. The penalty for mass murder is physical execution by God. The penalty for Stalin's sin of killing 10 million people is physical execution by God. The penalty for being Jeffrey Dahmer and killing people and eating them is physical execution by God. The penalty for a man raping his son or a daughter, physical execution by God. The penalty for stealing a pack of razzles from a store is physical execution by God. And you see, intuitively, you're not going to like this. You might be able to nod your head but you're going to have to wrestle with this biblical truth because it doesn't look right. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem reasonable because we live in a world of consequences where big sins have big consequences and little sins have little consequences. So we think that same principle applies to penalty, that big sins have big penalties and little sins have little penalties. But the Bible simply says all sins are, and it says that in James. For, um, he says it this way, for whoever keeps, the theoretically, whoever keeps the whole law, you know this verse? For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, one sin, James says he's, he's become guilty of the whole thing. And then he says why? Because the God who said, do not commit murder, is the same God who said, Do not commit adultery. Now, then he goes on and says, Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the whole law. See, every sin is like trespassing. And it doesn't matter, when it comes to trespassing, it doesn't matter where you cross the fence line or how long you cross the fence line. All that matters is, did you cross the fence line? You cross the fence line, you have to pay the penalty what if a five-year-old little blonde-haired girl steals deliberately steals from her mother's purse? Is that a sin? Well, would Jesus do that as a five-year-old little girl? No. What would God, who loves that five-year-old little girl, have to do to her to bring about divine justice if we take Jesus out of the picture? He'd have to take her out and execute her to bring about justice. See, and God cannot act unjustly. How often do you need to steal to be a thief? Very good, I agree with you. You're right. How often do you need to kill someone to be a murderer? Once. How often do you need to lie to be a liar? How often do you need to act unjustly to become unjust? So when God goes to great lengths to teach in the Old Testament in particular, I am just and righteous, and holy. How many times has God ever acted unjustly? Never. Can he ever act unjustly? See, some people we talked last night won't practice forgiveness because it doesn't sound just. I go, no, forgiveness has everything to do with justice. Because the God who forgives cannot act unjustly. Justice happens at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why God can forgive. Somebody has died. Is God going to execute the five-year-old little girl? No. Now we're at step four. Is he going to execute the pedophile? No. Is he going to execute Joseph Stalin? He's already dead, but let's take that. No. Well, yes, you're right, but see, you're in step three. You're in step three. When you say that, you're saying... And that's good. See, you need to get to step three. Before you can believe Jesus died and paid for your sins or someone else's sins, you first have to believe the guilty person should die. God should take that person out and execute them. Because if you don't believe God should take you out and execute you, then when you say Jesus died for that sin, you're just saying the words, but you really don't believe it because Jesus really didn't die for a sin you didn't have to die for. And if you look at someone else and say, oh, I forgive you because Jesus died for that. You know, you were gossiping about me, and I forgive you for gossiping. But then someone challenges you and say, well, if Jesus didn't die for that, what would God have to do to that person because he gossiped or she gossiped about you? Take him out and execute him. You go, oh, no, 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 it's just gossiping. Gossiping is not that bad then you're forgetting who the sin is committed against. The same God who said you shall not commit adultery said you shall not gossip. And he didn't say you shall not steal anything over $20. It's just no stealing. No lying. So we identify the sin. We feel the sin. We condemn the sin. Let me, I I guess... um, I gotta tell you a story of where. See, I was preaching this and teaching this and not believing it and I didn't know I didn't believe it until one night I came home from a church meeting at about eleven thirty at night and I was tired and and my oldest son Michael, who was eighteen at the time, Um, was playing at the computer. I was walking into the house. I could see through the window into the family room. Now, we did homeschool, so the family room was the school room. It had books. It had three computers. It had a television. All three computers were on. The television was on. Becky was on her computer. Michael was on his computer. And kids were jumping around. And there in the middle of the room was my new guitar that someone had given to me, a $1,500 guitar that had been given to me. was in the middle of the room, in the case, with the case open, with the neck not in the right place. Now, yeah, see, some are going, ooh, that's not good. All I could see was one of my kids getting bumped and pushed into the guitar, stepping on it and shattering $1,500. And I knew who got the guitar out, because there was only one other person in my house who played guitar, and it was Michael. So I went in, and this is what I was talking about this afternoon. I did the Garden of Eden thing. I knew who was guilty. I knew what he had done. But instead of confronting him, I lovingly said, Adam, where are you that 's what God said did Ad, did God not know where Adam was? He knew exactly where Adam was. He was giving Adam the best opportunity to voluntarily confess his sin and repent adam said oh i 'm hiding over here really you're hiding. Did you eat from the tree? I told you not to eat from
1: oh it's the
0: coping mechanism was already in place after the first sin. not me it 's her fault matter of fact it 's the woman. You gave me. It's actually your fault. So I, sa- I walked into the house, and I said to this, Hello, everyone. How you doing? Hi, Daddy. And they're all doing their thing, and Michael's working on one of these early online games with other people. And I say, Who got out my guitar and left it in the middle of the room? I knew very well who did it. And I wanted to give him the opportunity to, to admit his fault voluntarily without being caught. And without turning or looking, he said, I did that not paying attention. And I said with, I was already angry, but I was exercising self-control. I hadn't practiced forgiveness yet. This was early in my own learning process. And I said, I want you to get up right now and put that guitar away. You don't even have the right to use it. It's brand new, you didn't ask to use it. And he went like this. Aaron, you're gonna love this. He goes, in a minute. (laughs) Do you feel it? You, You feeling my pain? No, it wasn't broken. Not, that, not yet. And now my anger, my anger immediately went from here to about here, and I started to drown. And with gritted teeth, still controlling it, but with, I said, no, you're going to get up right now and take care of this and put it away. And, and, it was, and I'm not a yeller. I don't scare my children or beat my children, but it was interesting because all the children looked up at me and scattered like cockroaches, (laughs) like the light came up. Good night, Dad. We're going to bed. You and Michael can work this out. And Becky, sitting in the far corner, very wisely, loving wife, good mother, turned her chair, because she's now paying attention, and watches. She wanted to make sure I didn't cross a line I shouldn't cross and have to protect her children. And I, I, was, I said, no, you're going to get up right now. And Michael did this. <sighs> okay. The anger went up again. But he's not repentant. And he gets up, and he starts roughly putting the guitar. He knows how to put it away right. But teenagers know how to push your buttons. See, he was angry at me because I was interfering with his schedule, his game. So he's going to make me pay. He's not going to treat my, my guitar with respect or me with respect. And he started mishandling it, and I, anger got up again. And I grabbed it. I pushed him away. I said, no, you are going to damage this guitar. And I closed it up. I was almost shaking. Becky said afterwards, I'm not sure I've ever seen you that angry. And I knew I was on the verge of losing it. So I literally said, I have to leave now and work on this before I do or say something I shouldn't do. Self-control. Always exercise self-control. But self-control isn't forgiveness. So I got back into my car at 1130 at night and started driving down this little country winding road with no shoulder. Really not smart driving when you're angry on little windy roads at night. But I'm driving down this road, and I start going through these. This booklet didn't even exist yet. But I had I had already formulated and I said, okay, who sinned? And Jesus says, always look for your sin before you look for the other person's sin. So I prayed and I said, Lord, am I angry at Michael because because I'm sinning against him? Is it maybe I love the guitar more than I love my son? Is that what's going on here? And I listened to God and I prayed and I thought I was trying to be as sincere and honest and Nothing came back. I didn't see while I was angry. So then I said, Lord, is Michael sinning against me? Is he not treating me like Jesus? Oh, man, original, right away it was, honor your father and mother. Gee, that's one of the Ten Commandments. That wasn't even hard to find. And then it went further about how disrespectful he was being, misusing someone else's property not just my property, but someone else's property, being disrespectful at the computer, those big sighs. Oh, no wonder I'm so angry. No wonder I'm so, and then I started to feel the pain. Sometimes you'll feel the anger first and then tap into the pain. Sometimes you'll feel the pain first and need to tap into the anger. And then I started to feel that parental lament of teenage children. 18 years I've poured my life into this person. I have sacrificed, I have bled, I have sweat, I have given up things, I have provided, I have taken him to the hospital, I've gone to stupid football games and swim meets, I have bent over backwards, and that's the best he can treat me, man, that hurt badly. I thought about how I made God feel and how this made God feel that God who loves me said your son should not be treating you this way that's why I gave that command to protect you from that so then I went to to step three condemn what God condemns, and I should have said this I'll say it now you need to do this step out loud you should say out loud when you get to step three take Jesus out of the picture for a minute Jesus hasn't died And ask yourself this question, what would a holy and just God have to do to this person who sinned in order to bring about divine justice in light of their sin? And then say out loud, by faith, what the Bible teaches, God would have to take this person out and execute them. And so I said that out loud. God would have to take Michael out and execute him. And you know what happened? Immediately, all my anger towards Michael disappeared, but not because of forgiveness. Because out of my mouth, out loud, I said something I had unexpected. I said to God, no, God, not my son. Because my parental instincts kicked in. That's what shut down and suppressed my anger temporarily. Now I was his dad trying to protect him from the justice of God. No, God, I don't want you executing my son. I don't agree with you. This isn't right. I was preaching a truth that I didn't really believe. Not deep enough yet. And I heard God say to me in my mind as I drove down that road, the next thought in my mind was this, and it was rather firm, not mean, not loud, but firm. Get out of my way. Your son sinned against me. I drove for about five minutes thinking about what God said. Oh, yeah, up till now, I've been treating this as Michael sinning against me. What he really did was sin against God and victimize me. Now, it's appropriate to say people sin against us, but realize this. Every sin is first and foremost a sin against God. And so I was complaining and whining to God about how Michael hurt me. God was making me realize Yeah, Michael did hurt you, but he hurt you because he sinned against me, God. Get out of my way. Don't you dare stand between me and your own son. You know, there's actually a Bible verse in the Old Testament that no one ever preaches on. You'll probably know it. I think only pastors really know this verse. It's in the law of Moses. It's where where God says through Moses that um, if a parent's child worships other gods, and sins, the parent finds out he's supposed to take his own child, bring them before the elders of the town. And if they find him guilty, that child will be sentenced to death by stoning. And then God said this, you, the parent, will throw the first stone. Preach on that on Sunday. Why did God say that? He says that to us parents because he knows we have, a, we have a sinful, fleshly tendency to love our children more than we love God. Which is why Jesus said if you love your wife, your husband, your children, your life more than you love me, then you're not worthy of me. You, you're missing the mark. To love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind means no matter how much it hurts God, for you to do it, no matter how much it hurts you for you to do it, if it had to be done because of that child's sin, you'd cast the first stone. I know that's unthinkable, isn't it? See, that's what loving God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind really is going to come down to, that I love God more than my spouse, more than my children. What does that look like? It means when the hard decision has to be made, you choose God over your family. That's tough. That's life. That's love. And by the way, God, there's life that flows through that and in that. It's actually the best thing that can happen. God's not being mean. It's a good thing that's happening. So I was protecting my son from God, and God said, get get out of my way. Your son sinned against me, not you. And I thought about that, and then I realized what God was saying. Then I heard God say a second thing. He said to me, by the way, he's my son, not yours. because what i was thinking was boy god's being mean i have to protect my son from god because i love michael more than god does and god was saying you idiot well he didn't say you idiot but i can say that really steve god was just getting me to think about he was revealing my thinking and and i was thinking i loved god more or i love michael more than god so he says he's not your son he's my son So if you think I'm doing this and talking this way because I don't love him, you better think again. Which led to a third thing that God said to me is, by the way, I love him more than you do. And God said this, I never sin against Michael. What was God implying when he said that to me? You have and do. So, Steve, if you want to get into a competition with me over who loves Michael more, Steve, you're going to lose. So stop protecting your son from me. That was where I said out loud, okay, it took about 20 minutes of wrestling with this truth and with God. where I said, okay, you're right. I understand it. Now I understand it. Even my own son would have to die. You would have to execute him. And I'm in agreement with you. That is the right thing to do. Because you are God. Then I was ready to believe and accept that Jesus died for Michael. It was, you know, I said, is God going to execute my son? Absolutely not. Why not? Jesus already died for Michael. Because God took who? His son out and executed him in the place of my son. In The place of your spouse, in the place of your father, your mother, your grandparents, your boss all the people who have sinned against you, Jesus has already died for them. Which brings us then to the fifth step, which is this. Because forgiveness is an interaction with God, it's a relational thing, we now need to talk with God. We need to communicate to the right person. So when you're receiving God's forgiveness, you need to pray at this point and confess your sin to God. And the prayer is basically going through the first four steps. You say, Lord, thank you for showing me how I sinned against you. This is wrong. I make no excuses for it. No, I'm not minimizing it. This is ugly. This is wicked. It hurt you. I should not have done it. This is bad. I'm guilty. And I know this has hurt you badly. Number three, and I'm believing by faith, according to your word, that if it weren't for Jesus, you would have to take me out and execute me for this. Step four, but I'm also believing by faith that you're not going to execute me or punish me because you already executed Jesus in my place. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for executing your Son in my place. Thank you, God, for forgiving my sins. Thank you. And the last part of the prayer would be, now, Lord, please show me how to live without ever doing that again. Because I repent. I don't want to keep you hear what's missing in that prayer? Something almost every Christian prays, probably every Christian prays. Did you hear me ask God to forgive me? There was no asking in that prayer. Here's my sin. I hate that sin. I hate how it makes you feel and me feel and others feel. I agree with you that you should take me out and execute me but I also understand Jesus. you already took Jesus out and executed him in my place. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for this. You know, we are all taught to ask God to forgive us. And because I focused on forgiveness years ago, I went through the whole Bible to find every verse, and I assumed I would find 20, 30, or 40 such verses which tell us to ask God to forgive us. You know how many I found? None. There are no verses in the Bible that tell us to ask God to forgive us. Yet we're all doing it. Now people say, "Well, is it wrong to ask God to forgive you?" Not really. It's not wrong, but why would you ask for something that you believe you've already been given? If you really believe you've been it's been given to you instead of asking, what would you naturally say? If someone gives you a million dollars, what are you going to say? You're going to say thank you. You don't say Oh, a million dollars. Can I have a million dollars? Oh, wait, you've already given me a million (laughs) dollars. Can I have another million (laughs) dollars? See, the natural response to the discovery that Jesus has died for us and God has forgiven us all of our sins is not to ask God to forgive us. The natural response is, if you believe it, it's not just to say thank you but to live a whole life of thank you. The Christian life is just a big thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't deserve this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is so good. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Wow, this is life. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're not earning it. You don't deserve it. It's a gift. It's given to you. You don't ask for a gift. You ask for a gift. That's kind of rude. And if you try to pay someone back for a gift they've given you, that's really rude. A lot of Christians are living their life. I have to pay back God for what he gave to me. No, don't pay back. Just say thank you and rejoice in it and use it. In the second path... Yes, ma'am. Yes. But repent is not asking. Even confessing. Matter of fact, uh, one of the guys over here asked when we were talking about this yesterday. What about First John one nine? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First of all, There's an if and then in there, which means whatever this forgiveness is, it's conditional forgiveness, which means it's not the forgiveness of penalty, it's the forgiveness of consequences. Secondly, the word confess is two small Greek words, homo and logos. Homo means same, logos means word. To confess means to come into agreement with someone. So to confess your sin to God is to agree with him that if he comes to you by the Spirit and says... Hey, Debbie, this is sin. What do you say it is? And if you look at that and go, that's not sin. Everybody does that. Then God would say, well, we're not in agreement. You're not seeing this the way I see it yet. If you go, whoa, you're right. That is sin. Now you're confessing. You're in agreement with God. But confessing is not asking God to do anything. It's just coming into agreement with him repentance is turning away from ever doing it again that is a necessary part of of being transformed and being healed of the consequences of the sin but repentance is not necessary to pay for the penalty of sin the only thing necessary for the payment of the penalty is the blood of jesus christ That's why that side of forgiveness is unconditional, and this side is conditional based upon repentance. So yes, I teach repentance. I insist upon repentance, because God is insisting upon repentance for the forgiveness of consequences. Forgiveness of penalty? God's already done it all. It's a finished work. When I'm forgiving someone else, the prayer would sound something like this. Can I use you, Lonnie, as the bad guy? Just stay there. Heavenly Father I thank you so much for showing me how Lonnie has sinned against me how he stole that $10,000 from me, ripped me off belittled me publicly humiliated me thank you for showing me and Lord I know that when he did that you felt that pain like I do and you hate that Lord thank you feeling what I feel. And I am believing, Lord, according to your word, that if it weren't for Jesus, you would take Lonnie out and execute him because of what he did to me. But I'm also believing, according to your word, that you already took Jesus out and executed Jesus in Lonnie's place for this sin. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for Lonnie. Thank you, God, for executing your son in his place. Thank you for forgiving him I join you in your forgiveness. I do not need to see him suffer because I see Jesus suffering for him. See, forgiveness is an act of faith. Receiving forgiveness is an act of faith. Forgiving other people is an act of faith. Thank you. Probably the most important word or phrase in that prayer is to remember to say, Thank you, Jesus, for dying for that person, for that sin. That'll help. Focus your attention on the cross, connecting it to that person and that person's sin. Thank you for dying for Michael, for disrespecting me, for using my guitar and my personal property wrongly, for not responding correctly when I told him and gave him the opportunity to repent. Thank you for dying for Michael. Thank you for forgiving him. Lord, I join you in your forgiveness. Now, Lord... Please show me how to love Michael with the love you have for him when I get home. Now, when you're asking someone to forgive you, so in the first path of forgiveness, receiving God's forgiveness, you talk to God. When you're forgiving someone else of the penalty of sin, you talk to God, not the person who sinned against you, which is why you can forgive dead people. You can't ask them to forgive you, but you can forgive dead people because they're not involved in the process. It's between you and God. When you're asking someone to forgive you, now you do have to talk to the person you sinned against, or a close relative, or someone, a representative, or maybe just God. And you would go to that person and go through the same first four steps. You would say, Tilly, I'm so sorry that I treated you that way. God God has convicted me. God has convicted me that when I uh, talked about you unfairly like that, I was I was not loving you the way God loves you. I was sinning against you. And I know that's hurt you deeply and I don't even understand the magnitude of how bad that hurt you. And I know that God would have to take me out and execute me because of how I treated you. I also know Jesus died for me. Would you please forgive me because Jesus died for me so God can See, the focus of the request is on her so God can heal you. It's not on me. I need, oh, I really need you to forgive me because I feel so guilty and ashamed and I hate myself. I need. Would you please, please, please? Yeah, you're getting uncomfortable when I do it. That. You know, someone who asks for forgiveness that way, you go, no, something's not right about this. There's that story of the Nazi... Uh, soldier who was guilty of atrocious crimes at the end during World War II, who felt so guilty that he had to find, he was dying in a hospital and he had to find a Jewish person to um, ask for forgiveness. And a, a man, this Jewish man, wrote this book. Anyone know what it's called? I forgot. It's a fairly famous book. Anyway, it's a biography and he says, I went into that room And this German soldier there, old man, was dying, and he confessed all the terrible things he did to me and my people, and he asked me to forgive him. And I just walked out silently. First of all, this guy wasn't a Christian, and he didn't know forgiveness. But I bet what he also was feeling is the German soldier was asking for forgiveness for whose sake? For his dying sake. Not for the Jewish man's sake. So you ask someone to forgive you for their sake. Not for you. God will heal you when you do it, but it's not for you, it's for them. And the last step is to follow through and, and let God's love flow. When you receive God's forgiveness, he heals a part of your soul and you are more able to receive his love, to rejoice in his love. Remember Jesus said this, he who is forgiven much loves much. So as you practice forgiveness and confess your sins to God, the safest place in the world to bring your sins, and you experience Jesus dying for you, the joy of your salvation is magnified, if not restored. You get so excited that, man, yeah, I, am a, I was a sinner. I did terrible things. But you know what? God loves me, and Jesus died for me, and I am forgiven. Hallelujah. And no one and nothing can take that away from you. Amen? Amen. But that growing experience happens not just because you read about it in the Bible. That growing experience happens as you confess your sins to God and receive forgiveness. And when you forgive other people, Christians have it backwards. They think, well, I forgive people because I love them. No, it doesn't work that way. You forgive people because Jesus died for them. And because you know Jesus died for them, and if you talk to God about it and actually forgive them at the cross, guess what happens to your anger? It goes away and is replaced by God's love for them. Lord, please show me how to love this person who sinned against me with the love, not my love, my love is nothing, Lord. Let me love them with your love. What does your love for them look like through me? And, and there's no one right answer to that. That's why you pray and ask God. And then you listen, How? what does it look like for me to love this person, this unfaithful spouse, this bad employee, this disobedient child, this, this abusive pastor, this whatever it is? What does it look like for me to love them with your love? I don't know. And then, because you, your anger is gone and you've forgiven them, you're this clean channel to let God's love flow through you so that you could love your enemies, and it might even mean you might hear God say, this time I want you to turn the other cheek. The next time it might be call the police. But you discover what real looks, and you experience God's love flowing through you to other people through forgiveness. Does that make sense? So those are the six steps of personal forgiveness. We're not going to talk about relational forgiveness. I knew we wouldn't have time for it. But it's pretty simple. You can look at those principles, and there's principles, not steps. They're just guidelines. You forgive someone at the cross first, so your anger is gone. You've confessed any of your sins to them. But now you look at this person and pray and say, how do I give them the best opportunity to repent? And you let their repentance... Guide what you do next. When I came home that night after Michael had sinned against me that way, really really he had been sinning against me for months, and I was letting it slide as my coping mechanism. I didn't know what I'd find. I thought, and I thought about it as I drove home, I might be coming home tonight, find Michael on the computer completely oblivious to what he's done, completely unrepentant, and I'm going to have to treat him as an unrepentant child. (coughs) and discipline him as a loving father. I can't let him just get away with this. That's not loving. Or maybe he'll be in bed asleep and I don't know what's happened. Maybe, you know, I've been out for an hour now. Maybe he's in bed asleep and I'll have to talk to him about it tomorrow. I really didn't expect what really happened. I got to the door, reached for the doorknob, and this is gonna make me cry. (laughs) And the door opened by itself because he saw me coming. Kind of like the prodigal son, only in reverse. The father had left the farm, and the son, the bad son was still at home. So I'm coming home, and he was waiting for me to come home, looking down the road. He opened the door, and his, uh, he's an 18-year-old man, six feet tall, and his eyes were red because he had been crying. Before I could say anything, he said, Mom talked with me and explained to me what I did wrong and how badly I hurt you. Dad, I was wrong. I disrespected you. Now, he didn't know forgiveness well enough to even bring up the cross yet, but he said, Dad, and he started crying again, I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me? You know what I had the privilege of saying to him? And this is how it should be in any Christian relationship. I said to him, of course I do. I already have. And we hugged. That's personal forgiveness. Then I moved into relational forgiveness and said to him, now you do understand. What you did was wrong. And I have to, as your father, because I love you, train you into doing what's right. So here's the rules. You cannot use this guitar anymore at all for two months. After that, you can only use the guitar if you ask me. Are you willing to abide by that? Now, if he were only pretending repentance, he'd probably say to me, you just said you forgave me. What are you putting rules on me now for? What, what's this? Go- what are you doing, Dad. He didn't say that. He, I said, do you have any problem with this? And he said, no, I don't have any problem with this at all. I said, thank you. So I enforced the consequences for the two months, and then he asked. and He demonstrated that he was truly repentant, and that God had changed him. And our relationship was restored. I was healed in the car when I forgave him at the cross. The relationship got stored through relational forgiveness when he repented and proved it by living it out. That's what you're going to have to learn to do in your own relationships. Forgiving someone does not give them permission to keep sinning against you. Forgiving someone does not mean what they did to you is okay. It's not okay. Jesus had to die for it. Forgiving someone can mean, I love you and I love you so much, I'm calling the police and I'm going to arrest you. Or I'm going to spank you. The problem is you can't spank grown adults. With children, we discipline them that way. But with adults, how do you, how do you give your, your wife or your husband the best opportunity to repent? Well, that's a lot different than how you give your boss at work the best opportunity to repent which is different from giving your children the best opportunity to repent, which is different from giving your neighbor the best opportunity to repent, or the little league coach. It all depends on the relationship, the ages, the kind of sins, the amount of damage. Then you figure out, how do I love this person with God's love giving them the best opportunity? And that's why Jesus said, sometimes when you forgive someone, you've got to go and rebuke them. And if they repent, then you can forgive them. If they don't repent, you might just have to back off and love them from a distance and treat them as a tax collector or a Gentile. That's real love. That's real forgiveness. Amen? I want to thank you for all your time. I usually have a clock back there. I've talked for a long time, and you have been so good. Thanks for listening to this. I'm going to be here tomorrow until about one30 Sean, I think you're taking me at 1.30. If in the morning, if any of you want to meet with me, I think Alani and I were talking maybe as a group. How many, would any of you be here tomorrow want to sit around and talk and ask questions or anything like that? A couple of you do? Okay, so what do we want to say? 10.30? 10.30 to noon? 10.30 to noon? Yeah. Come over to the house. We'll sit in the living room, whatever. We'll We'll talk and we'll interact back and yeah, forth. Percent. And you can call me, and you you've got my phone number on this material, you've got my address on this material, so I'm here for you. And thank you again for letting me be a part of your lives. Remember, we are going to be best friends someday, so this is where it begins. Thank you.